It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And good evening. It is Carcone Carne still doing the show from home in quarantine. Carcone Carne sponsored by C&H Financial Services. As business owners continue to try and figure out how to move forward because of the coronavirus, C&H Financial Services is here to help. They offer a variety of products ranging from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates the expense associated with accepting Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express as a form of customer payment. C&H Financial Services ETAB solutions, easy to set up for your business for online ordering and curbside pickup. C&H also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs, which can help get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact C&H Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to chfs.us. My guest today, it is a delight to talk to this man. He is Steve Kilby. You know him from the church. You know him from solo music. You know him from being one of the most prolific songwriters on the, the planet. Good afternoon, Steve. How are you going? Good. You know, when I think of the church, when I listen to the church, I, I think of these meticulously produced soundscapes and here we are in 2020 your new solo album 11 women it's raw it's immediate this is this is a product of the times isn't it well i get i i've always felt like if i'm gonna do something that's not the church i've got to sort of try and make it as different to the church as i can um definitely the church is the church is meticulous and definitely this new album is not meticulous. So well spotted. So 11 women. Let, let's yeah. talk about these women. Poppy Byron, Aberdeen, Baby Poe, Doris McAllister. Are these real life muses? Um, they're all they're all composites. They're all um, to, to a certain extent. It's sort of like... Um, like in the Bible, you get your Adam and Eve. Are they real people or are they symbolism of people or are they ideas or what are they exactly? You never really know. Um, and I try and keep the songs like that, which is very frustrating when you're doing an interview and someone says, <laughs> does Poppy Byron exist? In, she exists in a song and she exists as a composite and she exists as an idea, as an actual woman on my phone or I can ring up and say, hey, Poppy Byron, what are you doing today? No. But, um, you know, in some senses, an idea or a thought is more real than reality. So once, like, say, a thousand people have bought this record and they're all thinking about Poppy Byron, she's sort of starting to actually, she's starting to take a shape. And, and if people go on listening to that record, say, after I've dead, I'm dead, then she's you know, you know what I mean? So it's yes. all relative. And because, because I write my sort of specialty is, is, is ambiguity. Um, I sort of, it's very, it's very hard to, to sort of um, answer questions like that. But yeah, to me, they're real. To me, I, to me, I see them. I, I've sort of, I've pulled them out of the inchoate 
wilderness where they were and I've sort of assembled them like Frankenstein and given them music and put words in their mouth and you know the album cover has a has a is a face of of, of a, a woman every woman all women sort of with the fish eyes and all of that so yes she exists in 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 many senses well, you mentioned Frankenstein. Let's talk about Poppy Byron. Uh, Mary Shelley was watching her yeah. telly. Uh, yeah. You put your rhyming talents to work on that one. Shelley, telly, belly, jelly. I think smelly. Was smelly included? That might be the only one you missed. Smelly. Um, oh, yeah. No, I didn't get smelly in there. Smelly's not a good word, is it? No, like, perhaps not. Almost, see, almost any word. Any word is um, you can use in a song, but smelly, you've got to go, smelly ain't going to work there. Unless it's for a kid's song. <laughs> it works for kids. Do you know, I, there was a guy in the Australian music business. His name was Michael Smelly. Um, that's a harsh name to grow up with, isn't it? It makes me glad bit. I'm Kilby. <laughs> I, I, I used to hate my name at school because everyone called me Killer. And, of course, I was the least... You know, that would have been good if I had been a killer. But seeing I was a little 10-pound weakling getting sand kicked in my face, so the killer killer had this awful irony to it. You know I mean? Hey, killer! And it's like, who obviously isn't a killer? But when I met Michael Smelly, I, suddenly I was glad I was Killer Kilby and not Smelly Smelly. See, and you grew up to absolutely slay live performances. See how it all came together for you? You're a killer well, they, on stage. There you go. You know, I, I was overcoming my um, overcoming my basic inadequacy as a child by overreaching to try and become a rock star. I guess I thought people would love me, but they didn't. They <laughs> just made them. It just made them hate me more. Sticking Some on of them anyway. Sticking on eleven women for a second. Uh, I I love the rawness. Like woman number nine. That's that's a garage. That's a garage rock song. Absolutely, it is garage. Um, it's well it was it was a you know you look at when you do having a process and my process was i had a studio for three days because that's all i could afford to do this on my own and so then you go well if i've got a studio for three days surely one of the attributes i'm going to inculcate in the music is rawness it has to be yeah if you're sitting there with three days and you're going to make a whole album and you're going I'm going to be meticulous and careful and everything's going to be, you can't do it. So, um, so obviously, um, yeah, 11 women, uh, um, woman number nine is, is, is very roaring. It's definitely a garagey tune, but in the chorus, it stops being quite so garagey and sort of turns into more of a sort of a little, um, sort of 18th century, you know, the bit, and she wants to leave your mind. And so become got this little piano going, um, so playing so one of those annoying pseudo sort of classical things. So even even in that garaginess, I try and introduce a bit of schizophrenia of like when it turns into the chorus, it and the voice becomes one of those voices. So it's a sort of an Englishman at the end of the pier, the one the Beatles had, and the Rolling yes. Stones like, on with the show, good luck to you. You know that voice. All us English people grew up with that. So you know great. the, you know that music hall voice. So even even within that gar garaginess, I try and get something else going on. Quite, juxtaposition. That's what I do. Juxtaposing ridiculous things. Yes, Mary Shelley was watching her fucking telly, um, 
uh, and then and you know then the, the songs all change and warp um it's like it's like you've got a liquid idea there it's like the hypnagogic realm when you're falling asleep and ideas they come to you and then they change and make mutate and your mother turns into your sister turns into your teacher turns into your girlfriend turns into a child turns into something else and you just go oh you don't sort of stop it and go what's going on you know so i've learned i've let my songs be like that they're liquid and they and 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 all the people change and move and the music sort of all shifting around and has has juxtaposition of things you wouldn't think would be in there you know um i'm not foreigner i'm not i'm not fucking you know i'm not i'm not um journey or you know that's that's like baby and then everything in that song is about baby and the guitars are i'm like bringing bringing all this different stuff bringing them sort of eastern sounds and bringing ancient things and bringing sort of suddenly raw you know dissonant things like like have it all in there let the song speed up and slow down and fall apart and recoalesce don't you know music doesn't i i I don't i don't like what happened in the 80s where everything became really you know like as epitomized by all those new wave sort of bands where everything was got the drum machine and you, you know i that was and and modern music these days the music my kids probably listen to all tuned and quantized and all that i hate that that's 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 the antithesis of what i think music should be i think music should be living breathing changing stumbling triumphant fall down in despair rise up again it should go through and if in one song you can take someone through every gamut of every emotion like the Beatles used to, or Bowie used to, um, you know, just within three minutes, people go on a real writing instead of the, the other idea of everything starts perfect and ends up perfect and is perfect all the way through. And all the vocals are so ridiculously auto-tuned and everything's, uh, what's the point in that? I mean, well, well, that's, you know, that, that there is a point in that because it's very successful and other people are, I said to my daughter, what does Kanye West actually do? And she said, he's a master at auto-tuning. Well, there you go. He's a master at auto-tuning. I'm a master at chaotic sort of throw, throw this, all this stuff into something and let it, let it see, see where we are. Yeah. And that was one of the questions I was wondering. You're, I mentioned it, you're a highly prolific songwriter. By the time we're done with this conversation, you'll, you'll probably have written a couple songs. I have. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, are, are you one of those guys who, who hears bass lines and lyrics in his sleep and wakes up and scribbles? Always. Always. Um, I have this weird, well, I have two weird things going on in my mind. Um, every word I say or hear, or I hear conversations, so I sit on a bus, I see them all, like even when like a policeman's pulling me over and going, Good evening, sir. Any reason why you're speeding? I see it all in writing, like subtitles. And I have all my life when my father, Stephen, what have you done here? You've broken my binoculars. I see it all as a real, you know, Stephen, I'm ringing you up to tell you I don't want to date you anymore. You're a bastard. I see it all, whatever it is, you know, everything, everything it comes up in, in, in like, so when I'm sitting, when I'm listening on a bus or when I'm listening to people talk or whatever I'm doing, 
there's a little computer part of me and always has been is grabbing lines and chucking them in into a folder so they can be recontextualized later. And then the other thing I have is a thing called semantic hyperpriming, which is one of the things if you go to a psychiatrist and he says dog and you say walk or bark or run, that's all right. But if you go to a, if you go to a psychiatrist and he says dog and you say midnight or Venice or um, read or something, he goes, whoa, boy, this guy's a bit, you know, like he's 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 sort of making weird um, he's making weird connections. But I've I've got that. I've got that semantic hyperpriming, so my mind sort of connects up things that a, a normal person's mind wouldn't get connect up, and that's no good unless you're a poet or a songwriter. And then you go, "Wow, I'm glad I've got this sort of what people would normally consider a disability," because my teachers didn't quite knock it all out of me, you know. Because I think I think children are, are like that. And they go down to the beach and they go, wow. And everything just washes over them. And, and so all the thoughts are kind of mingling. And then you go to school. And as soon as you get to school, they go, no, concentrate on this. Do this. Think this. When you see number two, you know, you've got to blah, 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 blah. And you come out of school and you've lost all this sort of, um, you've lost this ability to sort of connect everything up. Yeah. You've lost, you've lost, you've lost this notion of, interconnectedness of everything um but that they didn't quite do the job on me and i escaped and then of course i discovered marijuana which brought it all back again so now i smoke a joint and all that stuff happens again i'm like whoa and like this it it never fails to do it not and the two thousand songs i've written i smoke a joint pick up a guitar i remember mark boland said he strums a c chord and he can hear a uh, a universe of possibilities. <clears throat> That's how it is for me. I strum the C chord. I get a. I get a one word I might have heard on a bus, and bang, I'm away. And I, I um, I never dry up. I never run out of ideas. I do songwriting workshops, and people say, "What happens when you have a a writer's block?" And I say, "I don't have writer's blocks. I don't allow it. I never even. I won't even torture myself with that idea." that I could have a writer's block. I'm a writer and I write and I'll write whenever I fucking want. You know, if I, if I, <clears throat> I'm not going to wait for any particular point in time. I'm always writing. I'm always creating. My mind, even at the worst time, is always, is always ticking over. You know, like if, if I collapse in the street and the man bending over me has an interesting pair of glasses, Somewhere in my mind, I'll be going, you know, the man with the maroon horned rim glasses bent over me with a concerned look. And it'll also be, it'll all be put, put back in there. And then sometime when I'm ready, I can bring it back out again. But that's my, that's the way my mind works. It might, doesn't, it doesn't make necessary for a very, a very good guy for changing light bulbs and <laughs> going and doing the shopping, you know, cause I, you know, someone sends me out for avocados and I'll come back with a, a, a spotted beach ball because <laughs> you know i go oh, oh, i thought you know i sort of but but for being a songwriter and being creative my sort of madness once harnessed is very good i imagine if i hadn't harnessed it and i wasn't a i wasn't being paid to be creative and stuff i imagine i'd be you know i'd probably be deemed useless because i, I couldn't get a job 
I, I, you know, I've had, before I was a musician, I had a job and I was hopeless. I, I couldn't, and the, the boss said, I don't mind, you don't do any work. You stop everyone else from doing work. So walking around, talking to people about inane things. See, this is what I'm, I'm worried about. I, I feel the same way. All I've ever done is, is broadcasting. And I worry if the world becomes something like the road warrior, I, I don't know how to grow stuff. I don't know how to build stuff. I, I, I'm pretty much screwed. So as long as the world doesn't head towards an apocalypse, I, I think people like you will be okay. Well, thank you. And you. Uh, let's hope, let's hope we, we survive um, this, this squeezing. They're squeezing the world. They're trying to get rid of people. But they always are. You know, whenever you read, they have these pogroms and, and or they have these purges. They always, you know, we're getting rid of these people, these people, you know, you know, different races and different this. And then and then they always say, and the writers and the intellectuals are always thrown in with that lump of whoever else they're trying to get. You know, like, let's make marijuana illegal in whatever it was, the Anslinger in the 1910s, because we could disenfranchise the black people, the Jewish people, the poor people, and the Chinese people, and whoever else. And then at the end of that list comes and the writers and the intellectuals and the communists. You know, we can we can take them all down in one go. So obviously the powers that be, they don't really like writers and intellectuals and artists, and they never have. And you know, Hitler was throwing them all in in jail, and and <clears throat> we imagine that we imagine that I know, I know certainly on, on out the Australian government and probably American government is looking after musicians and artists and intellectuals during COVID is way down on their on their list. You know, like if the bank bank collapses. They'll give you all the money you want. But if you, you know, dear Mr. Trump, I'm a singer and I can't earn a living anymore. He's going to fucking laugh at that. He's going to go get a real job. <laughs> so it, it, you you have no writer's block. Your solo career has been very busy. The church has been staying active. Um, Man, woman, life, death, death, infinity a few years ago. Uh, another century to me from that album is as good as the band's ever sounded. That, that's one I, I can't get enough of. I reckon. Um, I reckon. When we wrote that song, um, when we wrote that song, I thought this is as good as anything we could ever. No one could possibly expect a band who's been together for whatever it was, 37 years, to come up with something as good as, as that. And that was a really, really good song. And I, I had a lot of arguments with other people in the band um, to get that song the way that it is. And I, I cared about that song so much that I almost let the rest of the album, uh, you, okay, you do whatever you like with the rest of the album, this song here, and it's going to be the first song. I really I really wanted that one. And I was so very frustrating for the other guys. I'm going, I still want this French sound. And they're like, what? You know, Imagine going to an engineer who's sitting there and he's got, Steve, what do you want? Treble, bass, reverb? I'm going, no, I want the French sound. And he's going, yeah, well, you know, I don't have a French button here. Um, <laughs> tell me how to do that. I'm going, you know, sort of like what I wanted. You know that, have you ever heard that song by Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin, Je t'aime et moi non plus? Have you heard that? Yes. Da, 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 da. Je t'aime, je t'aime. And I wanted, I wanted the song and everything on that song to sound like that sounded like it had been written by some French people 
for sort of an erotic movie or something. And it was very hard to get it like that because it's, I, I sort of had this, this sound in my head and we really fought and argued. And by the time I fought and argued for that song, I'd used up all my fighting and arguments and the rest of the album, I didn't think was as good as that. But that one song, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's a colossus of a song. It, is. it really is. Isn't it funny how some songs come to life? I mean, there's that song. And to throw it all the way back to Starfish, Under the Milky Way was a last minute thing, right? Under the Milky Way, <clears throat> Under the Milky Way was a song no one was really that interested in, and including me uh, and including the person I wrote it with. We wrote it. And in those days, I was writing 10 songs a week. And I put them all on a cassette and I'd give them to whoever was interested and people would, people would, uh, people would consider them. And luckily our manager, uh, we had this guy, a New York guy. Um, it was probably one of the only good things he ever did. He spotted that song amongst all the other songs. He spotted it and he said, um, that song's going to be on this album. And then, and then another a, a good thing was he was also, it was a bit of a conflict of interest, but he was managing one of the producers, Waddy Wachtel. So he wasn't just managing the band. He managed one of the guys who producing. He'd bring up Waddy and go, where's that song I like, Waddy? Don't try it, not put it on the album. And so by hook or by crook, the song got on the album. Nobody really liked it or cared about it or thought about it much. It was just a, like an un, sort of an afterthought. And then Clive Davis came in and went, that one's the hit. And he yeah. walked out and all the guys walked out and went, that's a hit. 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 As they all walked out, shook my hand. And then because they said it would be a hit, they made it a hit. I mean, there was no way Clive Davis put everything into that and went, this song's going to be a hit. And he went to everybody in the company and said, this song's going to be a hit. And everybody in the company made it a hit. And they, and then after it was a hit, everybody involved sort of reconsidered their, they sort of reinvented their the history of how, oh, we always knew. I love, you know, that, yeah, we love that song. No, they didn't. Nobody did. And I didn't either. I didn't even know I'd, when I wrote it, when we recorded, I didn't know it was a hit until it was a hit. And then I was going, wow, I wrote a hit. But it was just an accident, really. So a couple of years ago, the church was in Chicago, uh, Lincoln Hall, celebrating 30 years of Starfish. Did COVID rob us of a 30-year anniversary tour for Gold 40, Afternoon Fix? 40. 40. 40. So, so we formed in 1980. Um, and this would have been, we, COVID, COVID robbed the whole world. We were touring Europe. We were having a church convention in London, like a Star Trek convention, only it's a church convention where people get together and go, oh, I like this was my favorite thing and this guy was my favorite member and this and blah, blah, blah. And then we were going to do this big tour of Australia, probably getting close to it now, our 40th anniversary. Um, but that obviously ain't happening. Um, and not only that, but we lost the final founding member of the church, Peter Coppice, due to musical and personal differences, he left. So it's really just me. Um, and Tim Poles, who's sort of been in the band since 1993, it's incredible the amount amounts of time we're talking in. When I yeah. first started getting in bands, if you were in a band for two weeks, 
you were considered a veteran. You know, <laughs> like, we've had this band for two weeks um, and, and no one's left. Um, but so 40 years later, it's just me. Um, I, I feel like the church has amassed this body, body of work. I have written most of it or co-written huge chunks. And I, didn't, I felt disinclined to stop having the band as my trademark and my, my vehicle to play all this music. And I've got some great players on board. Um, and we, we intend to, if COVID ever goes away, we intend to carry on, you know, playing this huge, and we've got a brand new album with the new lineup. Um, we intend to carry on, I guess, awesome. until I fall off my perch, which can't, surely can't be that far off. Um, because I can't just stop doing it. Um, I, I can't imagine you a, could. Yeah. And, and it means something to people. It, it's gone beyond, it's funny, and, and I, I, I'm always amazed by this. I started out a young guy forming a band. I'm 24. You know, I want to have hits. I want to meet girls. I want to take drugs. I want to go to America and stay in a hotel. Did I, was I thinking about, I want to make something that'd be meaningful for people for the rest of their lives and be the soundtrack of their life and sort of help them over the death of their budgerigar and their, you know, all of this sort of whatever it is. Um, but that's what it has become. And sure. so strangely enough, I, I feel a sort of a duty to carry on with this because people, for some people, we're like the, like the Beatles and Bowie are to me, that is what the church are to people around the world. Not billions and billions, but thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Sure. The church, the church are their favorite thing. Um, Under the Milky Way means a lot to them and they've all got their favorite albums and favorite. We've made like 40 records or something. So there's a lot of music there people want to hear. And it's sort of gone beyond it's gone beyond individuals. It's like a, it's an idea now. It's an idea and it's a body of work. And I've said to them, if I do die and if there is a demand, please get another singer and keep going. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like, like the Eagles are doing, you know, as they die off mm -hmm. the, the children join in and play like, you can, one could imagine in 50 years time, the Eagles grandchildren are going around the world playing Hotel California and take it easy. And so they should. It's like, why should it, if it's great music and stuff, why should it end when the individual's lives end or the individual's concerned have had enough? Uh, you know, the guys, Marty Wilson Piper and Peter Coppers, Marty played with us for 33 years. Peter did 37 years. People can understand that they've had enough. They don't want to do it anymore. They want to go and do something else. They, but the band has to keep going. And that's why I decide to keep, keep on going with this. And I will keep on going. It's interesting. Yeah. You talk about how the band means, means so much to different people and has, has taken on the, this bigger, broader life. I mean, I yeah. look at you, Steve, and I I'm transported to 1990. First time I, I, I see the first time I saw the church, you played Navy pier in Chicago. It was the gold afternoon fixture. And I, I vividly remember essence from that show is it's interesting how things, kind of stir in your memory and kick back up at certain times. And right now I I'm that kid at Navy pier watching you play. There you go. There you go. And 
it's people like okay so when so when i put on a beatles record bowie record or mark bolan or or bob dylan i become that kid again when i hear those songs i first took in when i was a kid and it's a it's a it's a, like a rejuvenation process um and the music the it's the music can access memories and feelings you thought you'd forgotten um mm-hmm. I remember once when I was about 26, I went in my parents' bathroom and opened up their medicine cabinet. And in there, I found a small rolled up tube of pimple cream that I used to use when I was 16. And I opened up the tube and I smelt it. And memories just rushed back into me from this, just the smell of this pimple cream of, you know, my first kiss and my first date and playing football and riding my bike and bang, it all came back. And music does that as well. And people enjoy that feeling. And it's it's a public service. It's a worthy thing to do. If I can come on stage and play those songs that you liked at the Navy Pier and suddenly you get this a flood of feel-good chemicals and memories yes. and you remember you remember your old bedroom and you remember your girlfriend you remember i think that's a it's a worthy and lovely thing to do and i don't want to stop doing it but it's something as i said something i never anticipated i just wanted to be cool i thought i'd play for a couple of years and i'd be gone and i'd be sitting in a house in switzerland having a blood transfusion and all that sort of thing um but it wasn't to be. And now I, I sort of have this, I'm semi-bound to this obligation to go around playing this music so people can have that experience, whatever it is. And, that, you know, there are, it's not just, it's not just nostalgia either, because as you say, you really like another century and that's got nothing to do with nostalgia. It's, right. um, it, it, so it's the church is a sort of an ongoing thing and unapologetically, it's an ongoing thing, and I will do the church. I don't care who comes and goes. I will carry on with the church, even if it's just me in the end. I will carry on with the church until the day I drop, or I can no longer do it. Jumping a couple of years ahead of Gold Afternoon Fix, Priest Equals Aura, I think, is probably one of the church's master strokes. I, mean, I still think songs like Ripple and Feel hold up. Was that when things got bad for you with drugs, with heroin? Yeah. I, it, it's a strange thing. Um, I was in a strange place in my life. Um, it was 1991, Gold Afternoon Fix all, only sold 350,000 copies. My, oh my, how you'd like, you like to only sell 350,000 copies. I remember, just to divert, I remember there was this band called Winger and Winger put out an album and they broke up because it only sold 400,000 copies and they went, that's it. These days, imagine these days if you could sell 400,000 copies. Um, anyway, so Gold Afternoon Fix only had sold 350,000 copies and the tour had been, sort of the tour was, we, the band was sort of morally sort of falling apart, our drummer left. I got into heroin. Um, I had a couple of twins on the way that I wasn't sure if I was going to be a good dad. Um, and I, I, I discovered I discovered opium and heroin at the same time. And 
when we started making gold um, pre-sequel Zora, I was still in the honeymoon phase with that drug. Mm -hmm. um, heroin and opium are terrible drugs, but there is, there is a brief period, like maybe before you're completely an addict and you've used up all your money and become a rat bag running around hocking your guitars and stuff. Um, there's this brief period where just like marijuana, it informed me and I, I thought, I've got to capture this feeling. I've got to capture this feeling of the way it makes me feel. Basically, and this is no real excuse, every drug I ever took, and I took them all, no one has taken more diverse. I've had every fucking drug you can think of. Maybe not some of those brand new, weird, modern bath salts and stuff. I haven't done that. But all these the kids today and their new drugs, forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not those new drugs, but those old style drugs. Um, I was taking them because I found in marijuana and then I found in LSD and mushrooms and stuff, this endless um, sort of inspiration. And when I, when I first encountered opium and heroin, I felt I want to get this feeling into my music. Um, I want to get this slow, sickly, sweet heaviness and also I want the free association that it would give me when I go into that, you know, when you see the junkie go boom and he nods off, but behind his eyes, he's having these dreams and revelations. I wanted to capture that. And pre-sequel Zora was when it was all, everything was right before I was a complete imbecilic junkie, you know, doing all the junkie tricks that you got to do. For that brief time, and luckily that was when we were making the album, it illuminated me with the endless possibility of, of the sort of trying to capture this opiated feeling. So that's what it was. And I think it's a, we had J.D. Doherty from Patti Smith joined on drums and gave us a whole new lease of life. Um, <clears throat> and the band were in a great stage where suddenly after, uh, after the Starfish album, everybody was in the band was a fucking superstar and nobody wanted to listen to everyone else. And for a while with pre-sequel Zora, the other guys were sort of detached enough to have fun with it and leave it alone. And, and um, sort of it, it, they, they, they sort of did their parts and, and we wrote some beautiful music. We had great time writing that album. Every song we wrote was just, Wow, we were—they were just falling out. We were laughing. Uh, I remember Marty. Marty said there stood there one day and said, "Well, we need another song." I said, "We do." I said, "What are you going to call it?" He said, "I'm going to call this song Ripple." I said, "All right, give me a chord progression." And he went, "Gung gung 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 And then this band goes boom boom, and we all join in. And I start singing and bang, the song just sort of appears out of nowhere, like a like a like a manna from heaven. So we're on we're on an absolute creative role and we had a great producer and we had a good budget and we made this album. I think it's a masterpiece. It's, it's so a good. widescreen masterpiece that sort of tackles every major thing in Western civilization unfortunately for us grunge came along at the same time and suddenly we were completely 
like, you know, when you, your stock gets wiped off the market, that's what happened to us. And there was no grunge came along. Uh, I remember turning up at an airport and there was this girl there from Arista. And I'm going, hey, are you here to pick me up? And she said, no, I'm not here to pick you up. You can get a taxi wherever you're going. I'm here to pick this guy up. And it was Kurt Cobain who had just, he just sort of, I think he uh, just, I think I only just heard of him just as, as Teen Spirit was climbing up the charts. And there was this guy sort of, um, you know, in his flannel shirt and his hair all dyed and sort of looking out of it and sort of unshaved and stuff. And that was it, we, you know, and then the Pearl Jam and all the rest of them came along and they sort of wiped us right, right off the map. If only we'd come up with Priest Equals Aura, plus we had kind of ruined it for ourselves with Gold Afternoon Fix. Gold Afternoon Fix was not the album we should have delivered after Starfish. We should have delivered Priest Equals Aura and it would have been a whole other story. But we kind of hesitated and uh, we didn't, didn't make we didn't make hay while the sun was shining we kind of we we made a kind of an inferior record um it was a lot of arguments and stuff hey, so, yes. so wait, you, you perceive gold afternoon fix as an inferior record yeah oh yeah oh definitely definitely an inferior record to starfish and undoubtedly a de de an inferior record to pre-sequel zora if, if pre-sequel zora had come after starfish when people were really listening. But I think we we sort of, it's like, I always use this analogy. You know when you watch wrestling and, and the, the guy gets the, 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 you, the guy you're cheering for gets the bad guy down on the, on the mat, he's ready to drop on him and deliver the thing, and then some people call out in the audience, so he leaves that guy lying there and he gets up and walks around and argues, hey, what are you fucking, I'm, an, I'm the champion, what are you doing here? And while, the, while he's walking around boasting, the other guy makes a recovery and comes sure. back up and grabs him and puts him down. That's what happened to us. That's what happened to the church. We, um, we, we didn't seize our moment. We didn't do the drop and knock out the world and release pre-sequel Zora. We fucked around with Gold Afternoon Fix. And by the time it was ready to do the drop with pre-sequels aura, the, the wrestling match had moved somewhere else and we were just wrestling with ourselves. And, and the record company didn't know what to make of it. And I sure. was getting into heroin and the band, the band was sort of, the band had been really united up until that point. We never liked each other, but we hated everything that was going on outside and we thought we were worth something. So when we weren't doing very well, it kind of formed, we were, we were, we were very tight and we had a kind of armour because we were used to not doing well. As soon as we did really well, everyone in the band, including me, everyone got a really big ego and sort of didn't really want to work and sort of every, everything became harder then. And Gold Afternoon Fix is, is the result of people not really caring or thinking, oh, that'll do, which wasn't the case with Starfish when we were still really hungry for success. And as I say, by the time it had come back round, it was too late. Here's why I like the church. Your self-described inferior product to me still sounds great. I still love Terra Novocaine. I still love Essence and You're So Beautiful. And of course, Metropolis. I mean, there's your, your like low moment is still something that I find 
energizing and wonderful. So I think that speaks volumes about the band. I think, I think the songs were all right, but I think, I think the way the record was made and the sort of the, the cavalierness of everyone in the band, myself included, we weren't trying as hard as we had done up until then. And some of the songs, yeah, Terra, Terra Nova Kane's an okay song, but I don't know. The whole the whole album sort of leaves you leaves people less than you know. It doesn't quite do what Starfish did. Sure. And I, speaking of Starfish, I, I dare people to find a better song to drive late at night to, playing super loud than Reptile. That's that's like yeah, turn it up super loud, dark Woo. highway. Let's hit it. Let's do this. Yeah. That just yeah. works. Go for it. So, all right. Again, the new solo album, it, it's, it's raw. It's wonderful. It's definitely, it's not the church. It is Steve Kilby just banging something out in three days. And it's awesome. It's 11 women. Uh, I love the way this sounds. You, you just, you keep, you keep doing it. I, it, it's I keep stunning. doing it. That's, <laughs> that's what I do. That's what I do. I keep doing it and I will never stop and I will never dry up. I've, I've got my guitar right here. Of course you do. And, um, I'm like I'm. Um, I've already written another album, which I'm recording next week for for um, the one after Eleven Women. Um, so um, I'm ready to go, and I'm knocking out songs, um, even if nobody cares. I'm 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 just doing it. Well, we care. And how lucky are people who are just discovering you in the church now? They've got. They got months worth of discovery ahead of them. I know. It's like in 1972, I woke up one day and I went, fuck, I've never, I've never really investigated Pink Floyd. And then suddenly you go down the record shop and realize there's like eight Pink Floyd records to collect. So someone waking up today and going to the church, they've got, they've got, I've got like, I've got like 40 records that I've done outside the church and the church have done like 40 records. And then there's the other guy's records. Um, you know, you've got a lot of collecting you and you'll never be able to collect them all. There will always be, there will always be that, you know, there was a record that was in a tin can, like a <laughs> film or, or there was a cassette that was given away in a, in like a cup. Or there was a flexi disc that some magazine, you'll never be able to find them all. Um, so it's not like discovering someone and, you know, you bang and get it all. And a lot of it isn't, isn't on iTunes or Spotify. So you're off on your, if you discover the church, wake up this morning, discover us, you've got a real quest on your hands if you, you want to be a completist. Yeah. You do. It is a Lord of the Lord of the Rings quest it is the lord of the, the rings of, yeah. yeah all right and i don't I, know if i don't know if i'm gandalf or Gollum. you're gandalf clearly it's I'm the gray it's it's the you gray shall not pass <laughs> it's it's the gray it, it, it makes you wiser and the beard, the yeah. beard. and I wizard gotta get my, my staff is my bass guitar exactly all right, Eleven Women is the new album. You are Steve Kilby. You are a treasure. I, I'm glad you're healthy and well. You know, we, we thank you, mate. I, I'm kind of wrapping this up, but I also want to say we, we talked about your heroin years, but we should all look as good as you do at your age. I mean, you seem like I'm you're 66. You know, uh, yes, like yeah. Uh, for for someone who did all the drugs, self admittedly, I know. Fast but, forward to today. Okay, let, you, let me say what I didn't do. I didn't smoke cigs. 
I didn't drink much alcohol. I still don't. I've never been drunk in my whole life. I have one drink and I stop. So no cigarettes, hardly any alcohol. And I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat meat. And I, I swim and I do yoga. And so for all those nasty drugs I did and sometimes still do, I sort of, I, I offset that with other things. I didn't, I didn't, I, I sort of offset it. So people shouldn't look at me and go, oh, it's okay to do all that stuff. I look at Steve Tyler. I sat behind Steve Tyler on a plane. How the hell he's got this long, thick, girly hair. And I know he's had a few facelifts, but he's still slim. And he sort yeah. of walk, got off the plane. He's sort of bouncing along. And that guy's in his 70s. And he was, a, he was the biggest fucking drug addict in the world. So you, one has to conclude there are worse things than taking drugs. Uh, and I, so, um, you know, it, it, that isn't the only thing in the equation. But thank you. Thank you for your sentiment. I'm glad I'm still around. Likewise. And since the interview's over, I, I've been waiting all day to say that we're done. Go, go now. Okay, mate. You've been set, you've okay. been set free. Okay. Thanks <laughs> for having me. 